0: Well, uh, good morning, everybody. Good to see you, and uh, welcome to Sunday. Happy Sunday to you. Uh, More than that, welcome to Transit Church. If you are joining us for the first time, my name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here. We're glad that you are here with us in person. We're also glad with you, uh, for those of you who are with us uh, on our live stream, uh, glad to be worshiping with you this morning. We have started a short series uh, celebrating the the season of Advent, and we're looking at two passages of Scripture today, so I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Two texts. Uh, the first is Hosea. Hosea chapter 11. We're going to look at four verses there. Hosea is a difficult book to find. If you can find the big the big book of Daniel, right next to it, to the right of it, is, uh, is Hosea. And check it out. Your Bible's a book. So look at the table of contents if you can't find that. Hosea chapter 11, 1 through 4. And then we're going to turn over into the New Testament. Keep your finger there for a couple seconds. John 3:16. Yeah, yeah. All right. Everybody says, I know that one. Hosea 11, John 3:16. Let's read these words out loud together, starting with Hosea chapter 11, verse 1 through 4. Here's the word of the Lord. When Isaiah was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them, and I fed them. I'll turn over to John 3.16. We're going to read actually 3.16 and 17. The apostle says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pause and say thank you for the gathering of your church. Thank you for a beautiful day. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. That, that rejoicing is a decision of our hearts. We wake up this morning and we have lungs in our breath, we have activity in our limbs and for that we give you praise. And if you do nothing else for us this is, is this entire day, you've done that miracle of sustaining us with your sustaining grace. And our lips choose to say thank you. Lord, we do thank you for this gathering of the church. This is not a, uh, a have to, it's a get to. We get to come and, and by whatever means, being in person but also being online, uh, we get to come and gather as Transit Church, as this local church, and all that you've called us uh, to in this community, and so we thank you for that. Lord, we thank you for your work this morning. We pray that it would be life and light to us, that we would uh, see um, who God is, that we would see ourselves in light of what the Bible says God is, and that God you draw us to, to Jesus by your Spirit, and that you change us. That's our prayer. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So second week of Advent, and if you have... If you're familiar with Christmas, Advent is sort of like Christmas plus. Uh, in Christmas time, we celebrate the birth of Jesus, and in Advent, we celebrate pretty much the the same thing: Delights, the lights, uh, the, the the circumstance, um, you know, the celebration. As we were setting up this morning. Um, the workman kids came in, and they hadn't been in since we decorated, and their eyes were fixed. I mean, the trees weren't even lit yet, and their eyes were fixed on all the Christmas trees here, and the lights, and it just, you know, it's just a festive time of year, and so during Advent, we celebrate that, that light has come. It's come in the person of Jesus, but unlike Christmas, during Advent, we also celebrate this anticipation that not only has Christ come as a baby, but this Christ child grew up and he lived a life and he showed compassion to those that need it and he healed the sick and he raised the dead and he helped the marginalized. And through that, he eventually goes and he dies on a cross in our place for our sin. And scripture tells us that this Christ who has come is going to come Again, theologians call it the second coming, and so during Advent, we also anticipate not just that Christ has come, but that he's coming again. And so the traditional themes of Advent are things that orient our hearts to this coming and coming again. It's, it's hope, and it's love, and it's joy, and it's peace, and, and we're going to add uh, another theme this year uh, of mercy. So last week, we looked at hope. Next week, we're going to look at joy. The week after that, we're going to look at mercy. Today, we're going to look at love. And if you think about love, my big idea for us today is that love is the ultimate motivation behind Christmas. But love is also that thing that God is calling you to. That The mission that you have for your life as disciples of Christ is that you would love. You would love those people that are around you, and that love is because of Christmas. Obviously, love is a huge topic. Love means a lot of different things to a lot of different people at, at, at like different times. Um, I remember when I was a kid, the first time I said I love you, I, was th- I think I was six or seven years old, I was in first grade and I loved Angela Toole. right? And that's kind of early, we start with love, but there it is. Um, love, love making is more, is different than falling in love. Loving your spouse is different than loving your neighbor. Loving a parent is different than loving that new album that you just downloaded on, on iTunes or that you are listening to on Spotify. Uh, and that's different than loving the piece that you have a family night, uh, two nights ago, right? There, there are all these different ways of looking at love. Sometimes love means affection. It's those warm feelings that we have. Uh, when we truly care for another person. Love can manifest uh, physiologically. uh, It's that phenomenon where our heart beats like real fast and our hands get kind of sweaty when we're around somebody that we really, 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 really like and we want them to like us too. I see Jonathan and Jess over there (laughs) nudging each other. It's like, oh, my hands are sweating, sweetie. I must love you, right? Sometimes love is that deep abiding feeling that you get with family members, like a parent to a child or or even a friend. There, there, There are times when love is not really about feelings at all. This is a different category of love altogether. Instead, it's about a decision of the will. I'm going to commit myself to the action and the being of love. I'm going to not only commit myself, I'm going to covenant myself to loving you, and so in, this and in, in, in many other ways are the ways that we describe love. And so today I want to explore this topic of love, and I want to explore it from the perspective of the love that happens at Christmas. And my first point is the is, is one that we all know. It's simply that all of us need love. Like there's not a person on the planet that's not need love. We're born needing it. We got the, I think Nick, you got the baby here today? All right, the baby's here today, and, and we, need, we need love from the very moment that we're born. It's in the human psyche, from the moment we come out of the womb, every, every person needs love. And if you've ever noticed a newborn, here's this, this, uh, this neat phenomenon. Uh, the newborn needs to be cradled and loved and held but parents of new babies want to hold that child as well. And the more parents want to hold the child, the more the child wants to be held. So at some point, you put the child down, what's the child do? cries. You pick him up. He or she is as, as warm and as kind and as uh, cozy as he can be. He might goo goo and ah at you, might even fall asleep. Why? Because he's, he's being cradled. He's being showed the affection of love More so it's innate to us to want to embrace another human being. And of course, as kids get older, they start showing different different affects of of love. Uh, A kid that's a a toddler, maybe they can already walk. A lot of times you'll walk up to them, or they'll walk up to you and they hold their hands up. What do they want? They're like, like, pick me up. I want you to, I want to be held. Right now, and then you have all these other different kind of mannerisms that children children do—not just picking me up, but butterfly kisses. Remember that song back in the what was the '80s, maybe? Famous song, butterfly kisses. You got the the, the child version of a bear hug. You got kissing on the lips, you got nuzzling noses. And so when a child is beginning to do that, you know, they're, these are the signs of them learning how to both give and receive love. And I think the truth is we never outgrow that. That's what makes being a parent. And I think there's some grandparents in the room. That's what makes being a parent and a grandparent so special. It's when we can not only give love to someone that we love, but also we're reciprocating that and they're giving it back To us. We're all born needing to be loved. Of course, we move into teenage years. And here's the thing about teenagers teenagers need love, but they don't want to express it, right? And and it's not that teenagers don't love their parents and their siblings and their extended family, they just, I mean, it's peer pressure, right? They can't show you how much affection they have for you for fear of what their friends might think of, the, of you showing them, of them showing you, you that. But one thing that we know about all teenagers is they need love by the way they use social media, right? When kids get on social media, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, those are kind of the, the, the craze right now. There isn't a teenager on the planet that ha- doesn't have the, uh, the, the that quick re- reflex action of, taking a selfie and within seconds, posting that thing on, uh, online somewhere. And what is it that a teenager is doing when they're taking a selfie and then putting it up online on one of these social media platforms? They're looking for attention. They're looking for affirmation. They want to know what people think about them. They want to know that people care. Like, like, what, is, like what are the comments that are being said about, about me? What do my friends think? And, and what these people want, more than anything, is affection. They want to know that they're loved. Comments like, I love your sweater. Oh, you're so pretty. Nice smile. I think they would be fine with anything, just as long as people are paying attention to them and making comment about it. And of course, the truth behind this is if a teenager doesn't get enough likes or enough comments, then it can set their whole day awry. It'll make them feel insecure. Social media has become this like instant source of feedback and validation. And adults, I mean, we're smiling and like nodding about by the teenagers, right? But I mean, we're the same way, right? It might not be by the same method. We're not on social media, at least I don't think we are, as much as our teenagers uh, might seem to be. But we use those same platforms and because we grew up in an era where we didn't have all this social media stuff, we're, I mean, it, like we'll make a cake and then invite somebody hey you want a piece of cake and then we're looking for feedback on how that cake tastes right we do the same thing oftentimes by different methods we're all looking for the same thing and it's the big a word it's affirmation we're looking for the l word we're looking for love we all want to know that we're okay more important we want to know that somebody likes or even loves us i think the reality is that there are also some who grew up in environments where they did not experience a love that was enduring or steady or constant. Some of us grow up not knowing love at all. Some of us have an experience that we had to fight for love. We had to, to put on an air. We had to pretend to get the love that we so uh, eagerly desired. We had to do something good in hopes that we would receive some measure of affection. Some of you may have grown up like that. There are some who had parents that left the home for whatever reason and they were devoid of love. That, that love that you want and desire and need from a, a guardian or a parent is no longer there anymore. And when that happens to you, it can create a pain like no other, such that you will search so badly for love that you'll do anything to get it. You'll do something that's immoral. You'll do something that's unethical. You perhaps might even do something that's illegal just to gain the attention that you want and crave from other people, and you'll do anything to get it. And I think that's how strong the impulse of wanting and needing love can be. And even then, if we, if, if, if we still don't begin to receive the love that we need, then what we usually do is we'll close off that place In our heart, so that no one can touch us in that spot ever again. We've been hurt by love, and we make a plea with our, uh, 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 a pact with ourselves. I'm not going to be hurt like that anymore until we close ourselves completely off from being hurt like that anymore. There's a story of a pastor who lived in an urban area, and he had just gotten fed up with a lot of the gang activity in his local neighborhood. Um, and so he decided to do something about it. And so he goes and he takes a risk. He contacts these two rival gangs that are in the area and he invites these young men to come and he's gonna play the mediator and try and get them to, to get along with each other. And so amazingly they agree. So on the day when they were to come, he's gonna have a, a kind of a, a meeting at his church. He invites all these young, young men in and as the, the men are filing into his church, they're gonna meet in a room like this Um, he starts to notice something, that they're all like very, very young men. They're they're teenagers. In fact, the oldest ones of the group are barely 20 years old. And then he started to notice something else. He he knew a few of them. He knew a few of them because they had been in and out of his church with their families. There's one young man that he noticed because uh, he knew that his dad had been incarcerated for for. For, for drug stuff and that, so the dad was no longer in the home. He noticed a younger, another young man um, because uh, of the abuse that he found out was in his home. And so he's looking uh, you know, at the landscape of all these young men and the common denominator, unfortunately, was most of them, if not all of them, were homeless where their dad was not present. And so as he begins to moderate and sort of talk and bring these guys together and sort of suggest some things that they could do, he stopped mid-sentence and he says something that he did not plan to say. And the thing that he said was really an apology. He began to apologize to these young, these young men for the lives that they had lived. He apologized to them for someone like him, like his age, uh, because all these, these young men were, or the age where they could have been this, these past, this pastor's kids, right? And so he apologized to them for the pain that they lived in life. He apologized to them for the experiences of their life, and he began to weep. Weep uncontrollably, actually. And his weeping um, led some of the, the young men to begin to weep as well. And they're all weeping because of the absence of love had led them to all alter this point of wanting to kill each other on the streets. We all need love. And the scriptures teach us a lot about what love looks like, even if we've had no other human being in our lives experience that cares about us. And what scripture focuses us in on uh, in regards to love is the love of God, because that's the motivation behind Christmas. And that brings us to our text. In the Old Testament, there are two primary words used for love. The first is Ahav, uh, transliteration, A-H-A-V, Ahav. It's a Hebrew word that carries a sense of caring for someone. It means to show great affection for or show loyalty to someone. Ahav uh, uniquely describes God's love for us. Let me give you an example. Uh, There's several metaphors in scripture where love is explained like a husband loving a wife. Okay, That can be Ahav. Sometimes scripture explains love like the kind of love a parent has for their children. That's ahav. That's the kind of love that we read about in our text. And so as we turn to Hosea, here's what the, the, the prophet says. He says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up in their arms, but they did not know that I, I had healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. So in verse one and four, the word love there is the Hebrew word Ahav. And so the prophet is describing love, uh, God's love for Israel as if it were a parent-child relationship. God calls Israel his son. And, and it's a love that says, whether you do right or do wrong, like in, in this familiar relationship, I'm bonded to you and I'll be there for you forever, regardless. All right, that's Ahav. And, and that's important because in the in the example of love that we're seeing in uh Hosea 11, like Israel did wrong all the time. Like uh, God delivers them through Moses out of Egypt, and no sooner than they get out of Egypt, they're complaining about their provisions. Like where where are my meat pots and where are my leeks and where's this good food that I had in Egypt? I like what, can I have that right now? God through Joshua gets them up to the Promised Land, right? And um, they don't trust God enough to destroy their enemies and bring them into this land flowing with milk and honey. And no sooner did they get into the promised land and God tells them, all right, you just gotta do one thing. Obey me, be my people, I'm gonna be your God. Don't serve the gods of those pagan nations that I'm telling you to destroy, but you'll leave a few hanging, few strap hangers here and there. They don't do that and what happens? They do the very thing that Hosea is saying. They end up sacrificing to the Baals and sacrificing to the idols of the pagan nations around them and God in his ahav love for Israel says, hey, you're my son. And although you have done all these wrongs, I will not forsake you. I'm going to be there for you. I'm going to bend down to you and and feed you. And so the metaphor here is trying to teach us something. And Here's what it's saying. It's saying that it's saying the same way that you give of yourself and give to your kids is only a measure of the way that God gives that God loves you. Right, it's it's like ten times, hundred, a thousand times more. That's how. That's only a fraction of how how much God loves you. That's aha. Now, the second uh, Old Testament word that describes love is a word that you are going to be more familiar with. It's hesed, transliteration, h-e-s-e-d, hesed. It's not in this text, but it's so prevalent in the Bible we would be remiss if we didn't bring it up. Hesed describes God's covenant love. It's, it's God's promise to love us in a way that's not dependent on how we love him back. Hesed is not based on emotion, rather it's a determination that God will care for you and seek your best, even if you're not seeking that for yourself and definitely if you're not doing that towards God. Hesed is sometimes called God's steadfast love. The, the psalmist says, give thanks to the Lord for his good, his steadfast love endures forever. So steadfast love, it can be described as loving kindness, but more appropriately, it's called covenant love. And you guys are familiar with covenant love. When you buy a house, you're entering your mortgage, it's a covenant, right? But more, uh, more specifically, we know about covenant because we know about, about marriage. That's the kind of love that we call people to when they get married. Whenever I sit down with a a premarital couple as we're doing a a few sessions, uh, getting them ready for that day that they'll say, I do, one of the first things that I, as a pastor, like to talk about with new couples is this idea of love. And of course, I start, just like I started, like, like, what do you think about love? And of course, Usually, a young couple will start with the emotion stuff, like lovey-dovey. Like I, like I, feel like ooey-gooey on the inside when I'm with this other person. And love, of course, is like that. But one of the biggest points that I like to make in regards to human love is, I tell these couples, I said, I know you feel like that right now, but here's the here's the here's the truth about love. It wanes. It, it will come and go. You'll have a strong affection one day, and then something will happen that will uh, that will cause that to, to settle a little bit. That just as easily as uh, you may have fallen in love with this person of your dreams, sometimes over time, you can feel like you fall out of love. And there's likely going to be moments where you're actually not in love with each other at all. There are times in marriage when your spouse will absolutely drive you crazy. And the people in the room that are married said, Right. And if you didn't say amen, it's because your your, your spouse is next to you. And you're afraid to, but you know I'm right. <laughs> I am too. I don't even know why I wrote these words. And, and here's the thing. With a premarital couple, one of my tests for their love is to, is to ask them. I ask them this question. i like, so have you ever known a moment where you didn't feel in love with, with each other, but that you loved each other anyway? Okay, that's a good test for a young couple getting ready to get married. And the only ones that I worry about are those that come back and they, they only have a rose-colored glasses kind of a re- response. Like, no, we've never had an argument. We love each other and we'll always love each other. And the only reason why I give pause to couples that only have this rosy experience is because that's not the reality of marriage. In fact, that's not the reality of any relationship. You're going to have those seasons, those moments where it's harder to love. And so I rehearsed with these couples that uh, the the exact vows that you're going to pledge on your wedding day before God and before this congregation of people is that you will have and hold each other from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until death does part you. And it's that love and cherish part that God's in, God intends, it's not just an emotion more than it is an action, right? That's love and cherish. It's not just, I feel good about you. It's like, I'm going to commit myself, covenant myself to love you despite how I feel about you right now. So I'm watching West Wing and uh, I've been watching West Wing for like two years. Like I'm, I'm like the worst Netflix, a Netflix binge person because like I can't be consistent with it. I'm just like I'm, not, I'm just like that. Um, but I really like West Wing, and I'm sort of trying to get through it because on November, uh, December twenty fourth, it's gonna like disappear from Netflix. So I, I like I'm I just finished season six, and I got a whole another season to get through, and it's like eighteen episodes. Like I, I mean, who does that anyway? I like West Wing in season six. So uh, Josiah Bartlett is the president, that's Martin Sheen, his wife is Stockard Channing, her name is Abby, and, uh, and the president has multiple sclerosis, and his multiple sclerosis is starting to, to show up. He lost dexterity in his hands, he couldn't like, move them. he lost his like, like everything from the, from the waist down, he couldn't move. And so they're in a, a bedroom scene, he has to go and do what the president does, and uh, he's sitting on the bed, they're talking back and forth, and he's like, he's looking at Abby and says, "Like, like, you're gonna help me put my pants on." And so she, she's like, "Oh." She walks over, and it's it's like comical. Like they're wrestling and jostling, and trying to you know, and she having to help hold his weight up to get his pants on. And then in thirty seconds later, exhausted, they both fall over on the bed. He looks at her and he says, "I guess this is why they make us do vows when we get married." And she says, "Show sure enough." That's, that's a that's a picture. Of marriage, right? It's, it's a picture of 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 us uh, being married uh, together, and so this idea of love and cherish is an action of putting someone else's needs before your own. Because I don't know if you know this, most of us are selfish, and we put our we put our needs before other people, even those that we love. To love and to cherish is to bless someone, to encourage someone, it's, an, it's just a determination that you're gonna love them by the decision of your will and, 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 and of course, by the help of the Holy Spirit. And when you do that from a place of consistency over time, you'll find that even in those seasons where to love someone is really tough, this, this hesed, covenantal love sustains you and your love endures, why? because you practice love. And that's what hesed is. So God has made his, this, this covenantal love with us, and it's this hesed kind of love. God is committed to us as a decision of his divine will. God says to us, I will love you, and I will seek your best, even if that's not reciprocated. And so over 200 times in the Old Testament, we read that God has hesed, covenantal love, for his people and that means you and so when we get to get to the new testament both these words ahab and hesed are are introduced to us and captured in one greek word and that word is agape now there's several greek words several words in the greek language that represent love we have storge which is a family like a familial love You've got uh, eros, which we get the word erotic, an erotic kind of uh, man loves woman uh, kind of love, and phileo, the brotherly love, Philadelphia, think about that. But agape is the word that's mostly used when it describes God's love for us. Agape is defined as a selfless, sacrificial love, uh, but it also has an element of emotional love embedded in it as well. And in the Bible, agape is one of the most commonly used loves, uh, use words for God's love for us and the love that God calls us to to have for one another. Did you catch that? It not only describes God's love for you, but it also describes the love that you are intended, commanded by Jesus to have for other people. Agape, and that brings us to John three sixteen. Famous, the most famous. Bible verse in your whole Bible. We're gonna read 16 and 17. Let's read these out loud together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Um, I still haven't figured out. All right, that was the ESV. I, I mean, most of us learn it in the King James Version, don't we? But, I mean, why don't we still do that? Like, don't go out and buy a King James Bible. I shouldn't have said that, but I did. All right. So the word for love used here in John three sixteen in the ESV is the word agape. Okay, this points us towards the motivation behind Christmas. And what I want you to notice is that the irony, like I'm talking about Christmas from John's Gospel, and John doesn't say anything about Christmas. Right? There's there's no talk of of wise men. John doesn't give, John doesn't introduce us, us to shepherds. Um, uh, tending their flocks by night, John skips the part about angels. he doesn't even mention Jesus mama, Virgin Mary Jesus uh, Mary, uh, Virgin Mary, right? He didn't say any of that. John uh, mentions none of those stories that are typical um, that we talk about during Christmas time. I think John was just, John was just a unique guy. But John is presenting to us uh, nevertheless, a version of the Christmas story that begins uniquely at the very beginning we look at that last week john begins his gospel with in the beginning was the word right and the word was god and the word was with god he was with god in the beginning all things were made through him john says and without him was not anything made that was made in him was life and the life was the light of men the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it guess what that's what that's what john is doing guess what he's doing He's telling us about Christmas. He's telling us about light coming in the darkness to dissipate it and shine throughout all the earth, more important to shine in our hearts. John is telling us about Christmas. And again, fast forward to John chapter three to these verses that we read and we read these words about John, about God so loving the world. And that's what Christmas is. Christmas is God's way of communicating to us his love for mankind. How does he do that? God incarnates love for us. He he brings Jesus from eternity to earth in flesh. God coming in flesh. So when we think about Christmas, we should understand the reality of this story. It's really a love letter from God. And Jesus, God is saying, I love you, whatever your name is. And, And if you don't know anything about love, If you're just hearing about love for the first time, or if you've heard about it, but you really want to feel it, that's a transformative idea. That regardless of how you grew up, with parents or not, it doesn't matter if your parents or your guardians care for you well or care for you not at all. Or whether your spouse loves you or perhaps has abandoned you, or you feel like they've abandoned you in your love. There is one, capital O-N-E, who loves you with a love that will not let you go. You are loved by God. And that is an amazing message, an amazing message about Christmas that John gives us without even telling us about Christmas. And that's amazing, particularly given that God is the creator of the universe. I mean, God is busy. He's got a lot to do. And yet the scripture says that God cares about what happens on this little speck of dust called planet Earth. But more than that, he cares about humanity on the planet. Genesis, now Genesis 1 and 2 tells us. He, he, he gives us the role of vice regents on the planet. And more than that, God cares and, about you. He even knows your name. He knows your story. The God who loves you knows you and your story. That's a transformative message. It's transformative if we believe it. You see what John says here? He hones in on this idea of belief. John 3.16, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish. We're being invited to trust in this message of love, that God loves you so much, that word so is important, that little adverb explaining how God loves you. It, it means that God loves you to this extent, right? That He would, that he would send His only Son, From eternity to earth. He cares about you that much. That Jesus would come to earth to save you and give you eternal life with him. And of course, the greatest gift of Christmas is not that we get presents and lights and the the pomp and circumstance of Christmas. We get God himself in the person of Jesus. It's an awesome invitation. But here's the truth. I think it's hard for some of us to trust that, isn't it? It's hard for some of us to trust this, this great invitation that God uh, suggests here in these, in these words. And it's hard for us to trust that, especially if we've had a deficit of love growing up. It can be hard to trust the love of God if you haven't trusted the love of other people who were supposed to love you just because they're supposed to love you. So sometimes we can superimpose how others love us on how God is supposed to love us as well. But the scriptures here claim that Jesus died to say these very words. In my Bible, these are red. That means Jesus says them. Have you ever noticed that? This isn't just John giving us the the details of how the world began through Jesus and and a few things that Jesus did on the earth. He's actually giving us Jesus' words. And so when, when it says, for God so loved the world, this is Jesus telling us what God the Father did through the Son. To bring love to you. And so when Jesus hangs on the cross, part of what he's saying is, you know what? This world is so, that word's so, this is the extent that I'm going to love you. This world is so messed up and broken. Here is the extent to what God is willing to do to save you. And part of what he's saying is, this is how much God loves you. That's the message of Christmas. So this week I've been uh, I've been singing a lot of Christmas songs, as I uh, as many of you probably have. But there is one song that I've been singing this week, uh, and I don't even know why because it's a song that we t- uh, typically sing um, during Easter time. Actually, here at Transit Church, we sing it all the time. It's this uh, this cool, great, like uh, immensely deep-worded song, "How Deep the Father's Love for Us." It's by a British um, hymn writer and uh, singer-writer by Stuart Townsend, and he writes the words of this song. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. I don't know the rest of the words. I didn't write them down. Yeah, 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 that part. I mean, have you ever listened to those words? I, I wonder what was going through Stuart, Stuart Townsend's life that he could write to such a death and capture the very essence of what happens at Christmas and the thing that God does, not just in the birth of Jesus, but in the trajectory of his life that would lead him to a cross to die for people that are wretches, that are his enemies. Some of you know my story. I've told it like, a version of it in, in several sermons. Uh, I grew up in uh, a family that loved me. I felt love growing up, particularly on my mother's side. I mean there's like you know, like aunts and uncles and like, like, like I don't know, layers and layers and layers of, of family members and we, uh, we were in a singing family and so love for us was gathering during the holidays and telling stories and singing. That's kind of how I grew up. I grew up going to church uh, not not every Sunday. My parents went to church often, but uh, as a teenager I sort of fell out of church. Uh, I didn't grow up as a Christian, but I did know what church was like. Um, but it was at West Point that I first learned this idea that God loved me. And that's important because I didn't know I needed God's love. I wasn't seeking God's love. Um, the circumstances that got me to West Point wasn't because I was trying to go to the Army. I was actually trying to go to college for free. My parents were lower middle class, they probably couldn't have paid for me to go to school. And going into the military was a great opportunity for me. I ended up going to West Point and like three months in, gosh no, I was on my own. Like it was hard. Like West Point is a, you know, it's a service academy obviously and it's going to stretch you, grow you, challenge you. And I was stretched, I was stretched in a lot of ways. Uh, Particularly, I mean I, I think I did okay militarily. I did really well physically, The academics, oh man, I was struggling from day one. And uh, come halfway through my plebe year to halfway through my yearling year, like I was on the verge of getting kicked out. And so um, I was dealing with that, kind of depressed, just lonely, and so one of the ways I reached out, just to try to find a little bit of solace for my own soul, was through a, 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 a club called the Cadet Gospel Choir. Obviously, uh, you know, a spiritual, singing choir, it traveled and I had grown up singing so that was a natural way for me to try and um, make myself feel better. I just needed some friends and of course the, the singing venue was a, was a good part of that. And So I started singing with the gospel choir. Little did I know, like this was like a real choir that actually, people that love God and all that stuff, which I wasn't trying to do, but okay, if you came with that, I'll do that too. And so some of my friends started going to this, uh, this Bible study by the navigators, navigators of parachurch parachurch ministry um, that caters to the military, trying to make disciples, who make disciples. And so uh, I did that too, not because I was trying to find God or I thought I needed God, my friends were doing it. I was trying to be with my friends. And little did I know, we were reading the book of John over one semester and the words of scripture, I, I, this was the first time I have ever read the Bible. And the words of Scripture just jumped off the page. And it said, Jeff, listen to me. Love me because I love you. I, I, I read the Bible for the first time. I'm learning that I wasn't a Christian because I went to my grandma's church, because I sang in my grandma's choir, because I, I got baptized. I wasn't a Christian because of the things that I do or do well or not do. I was a Christian because God had sent his son. Like these very same words. He sent his son in love to show how much he loved me." Those were impactful words and it changed the trajectory of my life. Of course, it took me 20 years of army service to get to where I am now, but reading these words in the Gospel of John changed my life some 40 years ago uh, to make me a great recipient of God's love. I learned that God loved me just because he loved me. Here's the truth. God had to bring, he, like, I, I, I tell people all the time, it's like, God um, brought me to West Point, not necessarily for the military per se, but so that he would bring me to the end of myself so that I could meet him. It worked. Perhaps that's what he's doing to you. I don't know where you are, what's going on in your life, but you know what? It's not beneath God to bring you to the very end of yourself so that he can tell you these words, I love you. God loves you. You matter to God. You're treasured by God. If you've ever felt the intense, deep emotional feeling for another another human being, spouse, a child, a parent, someone a, a close friend, you have only caught just a glimpse of the love that God has for you, and he wants you to experience that. And so it's not just how deep the father's love for us is how deep the Father's love for you. Like, it's personal. God loves you. That's the message of Christmas. That's the power of this season, and it's the message that you are, in fact, deeply loved by God. And you know, there's a lot else to notice in John 3.16. In John 3.16, we see this amazing nature of God's love. In John 3.16, we see that God is a giving God. He gives of himself to us in love. In John 3.16, we get to to be on the receiving end of all of that, all that love. For some crazy reason this week, I am drawn to this word world, like like God so loved the world. That's the Greek word cosmos, it's where we get the universe. In, In John's day... That the earth was was thought to be the center of the universe, and everything else that was important was in close proximity to it. So, really, what John is saying is God loves God so loves the world, God loves everything. And if you'll if you'll think of it this way, part of God's strategy in his world in regards to you and his love is to love you so that you love the things that he loves. And so that um, you might also um, spread that to all the, all the other things that you do in life. You loving God leads to him uh, reciprocating that and, and you loving the things that he loves. There's a huge ramification to that. It would change the way that we look at the world. It would change the way that we look at the things going on in the world, the people that are ten- tangential to us in the world, and the things that are happening around the world. And I'm not trying to be political. But it's just the truth. If we would love the things that God loved, we would have a different perspective about our own lives and the things that are going on in the world. But here's the last question I wanna ask ourselves. What does that love look like? What does that love look like? If we love like God loves, if his love for us draws us to love the things that he loves, what does that look like played out? And I wanna focus in on one aspect of God's love, because, you know, we could say really anything. If you go back to Genesis, God loves the luminaries. He put, like, stars in the sky and the sun and the moon and all that stuff. God loves the animals. Obviously, God loves the environment. He loves all kinds of things. But the thing that the Bible points us to happened on the sixth day of creation, and it has never, God has never let it go. He loves humanity. And so John goes on to talk about that. John uh, John 13, verse 34 It's what John says. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. Verse 35, But by, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And so God incarnates love in the person of Jesus to show us what love looks like. And that love is meant to change us so that we have the capacity to change the world. That's, that's a huge undertaking. God wants to love us so that through us, the world would see what love looks like, and they would point to God as the source of, of that love. said differently, love works vertically so that it can work horizontally. The more love you are, the, 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 the more love you receive from God, the more you're able to dispense it to those who are um, around you. The more genuinely you receive love from God, the more genuinely you are going to be able to love those who are around you. And Jesus is saying in in verse 35, this is the mark of the Christian life, that we love one another. Elsewhere, John says this. This is in his epistle. First John chapter four, verse seven, he says, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone, verse 8, who does not love does not know God because God is love. That's an interesting statement that the the apostle writer would make, that the very essence of the nature of God is is love. That perhaps has to, you know, um, that confuses some of us Because this idea that God is love is not the idea that we have of God. And sometimes we get the idea of who God is from how we were raised, or the people that are closest to us, whether they loved us well or loved us poorly. To some, God is a police officer. He's he's following us behind, checking our license plate, making sure we make a right turn and put our right turn signal on, making sure we don't go fast enough. And we think God is like that. For some, God is judge. That police officer has pulled us over, found us violating something, and we go to court and that judge is going to tell us that we 're guilty. And some of us superimpose that on God. for some, God is just angry and, and, I, and I focus on that because for many of us who are in the reformed theological camp, we can like we can like really press in on that because we see ourselves as uh, as, as sinners who need God's grace. We, we see ourselves as depraved in God coming and rescuing us from that, and we'll focus more so on the sin part. We're all sinners in the hands of an angry God, to borrow a phrase from 18th century preacher Jonathan Edwards. But here's what I want to bring your attention to. And of course, I'm as reformed as all y'all in here, right? I, I really believe in this sin stuff. But what John is saying here is that we kind of sort of got that wrong. Because God is a God of love. Look what He says, not just in John three sixteen. Look what He says in John three seventeen. For God so loved the world that He gave the world, uh, loved the world that He gave His Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Verse seventeen. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. I think John is telling us in some very clear words the orientation of God. It's love. It's not anger. God's not waiting for us to, to mess up and, or, or measure up. He's not a police officer. He's not a judge. And he's not angry. And I would tell you that in, in my experience, this, kind, this is hard for me to accept. Not just because I, you know, I read the, theology and I lean uh, on the reform side of theology. I think it's just easy for me Uh, you know, it's easier for me to tell you that God loves you than it is sometimes for me to believe that for myself. A lot of the time I find it harder um, to, I I, I remember all the ways that I've messed up and haven't measured up. Perhaps you're like that. I'm I'm not the person that God wants me to be. There are times when my prayers are completely self-serving in that I'm confessing yet again how sorry I am that, that I didn't get whatever I'm supposed to get right again, whether it be a relationship or uh, some, some pastoral duty. I hold that close to my heart. But here's another thing that I, I, I'm grateful for. I'm grateful that there are commensurate moments where the Holy Spirit gives me pause or reminds me, come on, Jeff, that's not who God is. God is not angry with you. God loves you. He loves you too. God longs to love me He longs to care about me, and he longs to love you, and he longs to care about you. And through us, God cares about everything and everyone else. That's what the scripture is telling us. We all all need to remember that. John goes on to say in 1 John 4, I'm going to pick up at verse 9. He says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his son, his only son, into the world, so that we might live through him. And in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And so John is giving somewhat of an apologetic, And, and by that I mean, think about the people who struggle with belief, In God, there's some that would say, well, I believe in God. If he just showed me something, show me himself, show me a miracle, like do something that would make me believe in God. And that's kind of how the Pharisees and religious leaders were. They came to Jesus and said, well, if you're God, if you're who you say you are, then just do just do a miracle. Do one more thing. And what did Jesus say? Like, I've already done enough. If you can't believe me, then you're not going to believe me. But John is saying here, it doesn't work that way. It's not like you can put a coin in the in the jukebox and get the song that you want one out with, with God. He's saying God is everywhere, and if you can't see him, you're not looking rightly. You're not looking close enough. Because the primary way that we see God is through other people who are loving others with the love that they received from God Himself. That's how God that's how the world sees God sees the love of God. He sees it through us. We Christians are called to incarnate the love of God to others. But of course the problem is the world doesn't get to see that kind of love from Christians enough. They might see a little bit, but they don't get to see it from Christians that often. And right now, in in the current day, what they see more than anything is judgment, criticism, divisiveness, tribalism. But the the fact of the matter is when we incarnate the love of God, the world gets to see God. And from that, there's this opportunity for the world itself to be changed. So I think think we think about that in light of 2020. A lot of all the ways that we've been against each other, instead of for God and for each other, all the ways we've been against each other instead of for God and the things that God loves, of all the comments Jesus makes about love, the two most jarring are these, at least to me. He tells us to love our neighbors. He also tells us to love our enemies. And my first thought is, like, who does that? And the answer, of course, is those who truly receive God's love have the capacity to also love those who are unlovable. We're able to love our neighbors, even the neighbor that gets on our nerves. We're able to love those who oppose us, those who are our enemies. Here's what Jesus says. He says, the world will know you, the world will know you're my disciples when you love. That's a different message, right? It's a different message than than we think about every day, all day. But that's the the consistent message of the Bible. In fact, over 320 times in the New Testament alone, agape or some derivation for the word love is used in Scripture. And that means that this idea of love, this is a defining ethic. This is a mark of our faith that we love selflessly, that we love sacrificially, that we love when someone doesn't even love us back, that we love because God loves and because God loves us, that has the potential to transform us so we can produce the fruit of the Spirit, which is love. One last verse, and then we'll be done. John 15. So John goes on to say, I'm starting verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. In verse 14, he goes on to say, You are my friends. You are my friends. And so what's the the grand motivation behind Christmas? I think it's, it's what John says. God sends his eternal son into the world that he would show us up close and personal what love looks like. And this is what Jesus does. He comes, he condescends into a world that he created to become a part of his own creation. He befriends us. He shows compassion to the unserving. He heals us. He restores what's broken in us, and then he stretches out his arms on the cross to show us that he loves us. Jesus loves us to his death, and that love demonstrably is unconditional. It's sacrificial, and it's willing, and that's love, transit church. The ultimate motivation behind Christmas is love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that it would Do its intended effect in the hearts of your people. I'm reminded of the psalmist that talked about just God's relationship with with man. What is man that you're mindful of him, the psalmist says, which reminds us of how great God is and how small we are. And yet the, the overarching picture of our Bibles, of Scripture to us, God's word to us is that the God of the Bible is a God of love. He's love from the very beginning, the day that he said, let there be light, the day that he created humanity on the planet, to the days of the nation of Israel that served as God's people and God's place, till even now. And so, Lord, I pray firstly for those who have yet to experience God's love, that you would, by your spirit, come and through the the power of your word break through to hearts that may not have experienced love quite like they they should have and that you show them a measure of your love help them to see that love through the people that you've already infected with it and then God cause the miracle to happen the miracle of, of of new birth by the spirit through your word, the words of the gospel. But we pray for everyone else, Lord, that uh, even as we think about Christmas, more than gifts, more than lights, more than the festivity of the of the of the season, which is all important, God, that we would be given the gift of love. And really, we've already been given it, Lord. Help us to receive it. Lord, even now, we form our hands into this into in, a way that we can receive. And we pray, Lord, pour your love into us. Help us to experience your love. Help us to, 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 to sense your love. Help us to feel your love. But more importantly, your word, help us to know that you've come into what with us in love. And, and we're not going to be able to reciprocate perfectly. We're, we're imperfect people. But God, thank you for letting us try. Thank you that you're a God of love. We praise you. Jesus name, Amen. Amen.